welcome then to think uh, today of this further theme from the book of Proverbs, uh, the theme of pride and thinking this evening of the theme of humility, and there'll be overlap in our studies. And it's been great for me to, to study uh, this, this subject and to reflect on it uh, in my life. The book of Proverbs, like the rest of the Bible, with its laws and examples, has a lot to say about this subject. The basic meaning of pride, as we know, is an inflated sense of honor, self-respect, and personal worth. Bruce Waltke, in his commentary on Proverbs, defines it as a psychological state of an exaggerated opinion of oneself that does not correspond to social reality. The word pride, as we've been learning with the children, is used in other ways to describe which don't describe a sinful emotion. A group of lions is called pride, as we learn today. The phrase pride of place refers to birds that reach the highest point in their flight and are ready to rush down on the bird or animal below which they are hunting. Our granny's garden is her pride and joy, referring to the immense satisfaction that she finds in her vegetable plot and in her flower bed. But it's in a bad sense, a wrong sense, a sinful sense that we are thinking of the word pride today. In that sense, pride means excessive self-esteem, conceit, and numerous synonyms for pride are offered to us. Egotism, self-importance, vanity, hubris, arrogance, overconfidence, self-admiration, self-love, smugness, haughtiness, snobbery. I don't need to go on describing it to you because it's a trait with which we're all familiar. We see it and hear it in others and we know it in ourselves. George Eliot likened a proud person to a cock who thought the sun had risen to hear him crow. Another writer compares pride to a beard that just keeps growing. The solution, he asks, shave it off every day. Alexander Pope, if you're poetical, wrote those famous lines, of all the causes which conspire to blind, man's erring judgments and misguide the mind. What the weak head with strongest bias rules is pride, the never-failing vice of fools. For the medically-minded, someone describes pride in this helpful way. He says it's the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick, except the one who has it. And from the book of Proverbs today, we notice four aspects about pride. First of all, the nature of pride, and I encourage you to, to read with me uh, chapter 21 and verse 4. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. The key point emerging from the book of Proverbs and from the Bible as a whole is perhaps stunning to us, surprising to us, is that pride is a sin. It's not just a personality weakness, an error of a particular gender, a flaw in our character. It's a sin before God. 
And this makes this study so important for us. And this point is made repeatedly in this book of Proverbs. For example, in chapter 6, verse 16 to 19, there's a memorable passage which describes things which God hates. The passage does use the word things. And I'm sure we want to know what these things are. The verses say there are six things which the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. It's a long list, but first in the list is pride. The exaltation of ourself, drawing inordinate attention to ourself, promoting self-reliance rather than trust in God. A similar condemnation of pride is found in chapter 8, verse 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech. I hate chapter 8, verse 13. And so in our verse, haughty eyes and a proud heart produce sin. But how does this phrase in the middle help us here? How does it inform us in what we're thinking of? It emphasizes and illustrates for us that pride is connected to sin. Some translations here have the plowed field. Some translations here have the lamp of the wicked. And perhaps that's a better understanding and illustration of pride. The lamp that is inside the house. The lamp inside the house permeates every part of the house, but is also seen outside of the house. And so pride dominates a person, influences our thoughts, our words, our actions. It's like a, a lamp in here reaching to every corner. But also people looking outside, they see into our house, they see that pride. The point is emphasized here. Haughty eyes and a proud heart produce sin. And so like God, we are to abhor pride in ourselves and in others all of us have a lot to be humble about Colton writes of all the marvelous works of God perhaps there is nothing that angels behold with such supreme astonishment as a proud person but the difficulty with this sin of pride in us is that it is subtle it is multiformed Charles Bridges comments, so many shapes does this sin assume that until God shows a person to himself, he rejects the idea of any concern in it. One of the ways in which pride catches me out is that I ask others about something that I want them to ask me about. So I might say to them, well, have you done any studying since you graduated from university? And all the time, 
I'm wanting them to ask me about studying that I've done since I ended university. It comes in many forms, in subtle forms. And so subtle is pride that we can be doing the right thing in the right place at the right time, but doing it in the wrong way. Jesus told the parable of a religious man that went up to the temple and he was praying in the temple. He was in the right place. He was at the right time. He was doing the right thing. But he was thanking God for how good he was and recognizing how bad others were. If you're not yet a Christian, perhaps you doubt your sinfulness before God. You've never committed murder. You've never stolen anything from the local supermarket. But this text is really helpful for us, for us all, because it's reminding us that pride is also a sin. Always speaking about what we've done. Always turning the conversation round to ourselves. It's a sin that we need to repent of and receive forgiveness from God for. So here's the, the nature of pride. Uh, first of all, Proverbs and, and the whole of the Bible identify it as a sin. Secondly, let's think of some evidences of pride uh, in, in our life. And here is, is the first one that we can read here. Chapter 14, verse 3. By the mouth of a fool lashes out with pride, but the lips of the wise uh, protect them. So here's a, a metaphor for us. Uh, of a rod uh, emanating out uh, from a fool's mouth and rather than using the rod to lean on or, or the rod to walk with this individual uses this rod uh, to beat others with so the words of a fool the words of a proud person uh, boasting about themselves drawing the conversation round to themselves uh, are like a rod that beats. And as we think of this, this metaphor, this lashing out, we, we think of the effect of pride on other people. You, we get fed up with someone who's boasting. We get cheesed off, we get sickened by boastful speech. Oh, they're talking about themselves and their achievements yet again. So pride in the mouth, in speech, it does injure others it does beat others but but this verse is claiming that it will also damage them it will beat them it will be detrimental to them people will be isolated they will be shamed they will be despised because of their boastings a second evidence of pride is here in chapter 28 verse 25 the greedy stir up conflict, but those who trust in the Lord will prosper. So the greedy here is understood as the person who is greedy of praise, greedy of attention, greedy of applause. An older version has, he that is of a proud heart stirs up strife. 
Everyone who does not agree with the opinions of the proud is regarded as lacking respect for the proud. Pride stirs up strife. Those who are greedy of pride stirs up strife among others. One writer says, he is constantly endeavoring to advance and please himself and hates and opposes all that stand in his way. And because he despises other men, is jealous of his own honor and impatient of the least slight affront or injury. Haman, out of love for himself, stirred up strife in the palace. In one of the small books in the New Testament, 3 John, Diotrephus is described as someone who is proud and he's stirring up trouble in the congregation there. A proud woman, she must be the focus of attention. She must receive the praise of the room. She must be given prominence. And this pride causes strife. The cure of pride, this verse says, is trust in the Lord, leaving our desires, our hopes with God, seeking his honor, his praise, his interest. A third evidence of pride in 21-24 is arrogance. Here, this person is desiring Titles, desiring respect, desiring honor, but the title that is given is mocker or scoffer. They desire others to respect them, to honor them, to title them. But in fact, the title they receive is a derogatory title of scoffer, of mocker. Here are evidences of pride. Stirring strife, arrogance, beating others. And to avoid that, we we should be well furnished with information about others so that we don't have to talk about ourselves. To know about one another's health and family and job and hobby, and holidays, and children, and home, and worries, and illnesses, and parents, and neighbors, so that we can spend the whole time in one another's company talking about them, and not talking about ourselves at all. There's a Jewish proverb that says, The sign of a proud person is that he or she never praises anyone. Just for today, as we leave church, try complimenting everyone you see. That's a nice shirt you've on there today. I like your haircut. New shoes. That's a lovely smile. Good to see you today. We've missed you. And if you can't do that, ask yourself, am I shy or am I proud? Have we insisted on being top dog, big dog, big wig, lady muck, big cheese, 
head honcho, leading light. We need to repent. Listen to the views of others in church, work, and family. Maybe read the biography of Henry Thornwell. Trace the journey of that man from abject poverty, losing his father, his mother working all hours to provide the very basics for a large family, but then going on to become the greatest American theologian in the Reformed tradition. Or feeling, reading that weary tome by yesterday's Daily Mail. Read the interview by Chris Sutton of the Irish 19-year-old striker for Brighton, Evan Ferguson, who's not a Christian, but he's living like a Christian in this regard. No flash, no swagger, a humble, gifted young man. The evidence of our pride. Thirdly, the punishment of pride. There are two punishments or consequences identified in the book of Proverbs. One is shame, the other is destruction. So here in chapter 11, verse 2, when pride comes in, then comes disgrace or shame. Adam and Eve didn't know shame until they in pride had eaten from the forbidden fruit. Disgrace was on the heels of their pride. Charles Bridges comments, Our God puts to shame or disgrace the person who knows not his bounds and who refuses to stand on the low ground on which God has placed him. We remember the people at the Tower of Babel. They wanted to build that tower to heaven in pride and it ended in disgrace. We remember Miriam standing up to Moses and challenging for a top spot and it ended in the disgrace of her being a leper. We remember Uzziah challenging the role of the priests and himself offering the sacrifices and it ending in his illness and disease. Remember Haman strutting about in the capital city and it ending in disgrace for him. Remember Nebuchadnezzar seeing the vast empire that he had built and then being brought down low. Here's a warning for us that the consequence of pride in God's providence and dealings in our life, it will bring disgrace. Bruce Walker comments, like an inseparable twin, shame or disgrace comes along with pride as an uninvited guest. And the second one is, is similar. It's it's destruction in chapter 16 and, and verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Haughty means lifted up, elevated in a wrong way in pride. The idea is that the, the person, you might have to look at it in your Bible, 16, 18, not 8, 16, 18. The, the idea is that the person is looking around him instead of looking where he is going. And ends up falling. Pride goes before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. King David numbered the people in pride. And then they were reduced in their numbers. Hezekiah in pride showed off the wealth that he'd accumulated in his, in his strong room. 
And God predicted that that wealth would be taken by others. Pride goes before our destruction. The example of Jesus, far more than the example of anyone else, drives us to be humble. In Philippians 2, he's described as emptying himself and taking the form of a servant. And Bernard in ancient times asked the question, when the majesty himself humbled himself, shall worms like us swell with pride? As we look at Christ, as we see his humble life and walk and upbringing, his washing the disciples' feet, we are driven to follow him, to humble ourselves. True appreciation of who we are should also keep us from pride. Peter the Apostle illustrates how we can boast of our commitment to Jesus and our following of our Lord and yet fall so badly. And lastly, the avoidance of pride. The book of Proverbs notices ways in which we should avoid pride. One is, do not overestimate yourself. Do not be wise. Chapter 3, verse 7, in your own eyes, fear the Lord and shun evil. Self-confidence. Leaning on one's own understanding and ability. Denies us looking to God for help. Even the pagan philosopher Seneca writes, I suppose that many might have attained to wisdom had they not thought that they had already attained it. Corinthians says in 8.2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Be not wise in your own eyes. Trust in God. Listen to his people. Hear his word. Secondly, do not praise yourself. Chapter 27, verse 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. One early writer illustrates this point really well. He says that that praise is like a, a coat. And although you wear it, someone else must put it on you. Let another praise you, and not your own self, a stranger, and not your own lips. James exhorts us to tell one another our sins, but we're to leave others to praise us. Jesus said, I do not seek my own glory, John 8 verse 50. A German proverb catches the meaning of this verse really well. Self-praise stinks, it says. A friend's praise limps. A stranger's praise rings. And here in this proverb are those three parties, are self, a friend, and a stranger. Do not praise yourself. Thirdly, do not seek praise from others. Chapter 25 Verse 27. It is not good to eat too much honey, 
nor is it honorable to search out matters that are too deep for you. The idea here in that last phrase is to seek out praise from others. Here are two things in this verse uh, which are good in themselves, but too much of them are sickening. If we overhear praise for our actions, well and good, but don't go searching for praise by asking. Usually we know how we've done. We don't need others to tell us that we've played badly in the match, that we've hit a few wrong notes in that recital, or that we've stumbled through the interview. A little honey is beneficial. A little praise can encourage us. But too much of either is detrimental. Then lastly, do not become proud when praised. The crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their praise. Here's a metaphor for being praised. It's like a crucible testing purity of silver and a furnace testing the genuineness of gold. So praise tries our hearts. Charles Bridges has a a, a nice sentence here. He that is praised is not only much approved, but much proved. And there seems to be a, a double idea in this last phrase, by their praise. Sometimes it's people praising us, or sometimes it's us praising something. Both reveal and test us. If a man is vain and light like Absalom, when he is praised, his true character and pride will be revealed. It goes to his head. They're destroyed by applause and attention and commendation. But if she is a wise person, praise will refine her, spur her on to further improvement. David was praised for slaying Goliath, and he continued his great exploits. But perhaps it's also about what we praise. What we praise reveals our character and our heart. How did we sing these psalms this morning? Meaningfully, heartily, in fellowship with Christ and his people, what we praise also reveals who we are. Pride then affects our relationship with God. And one way is by impoverishing us. The proud Christian is a spiritually poor Christian. D.L. Moody makes that point when he writes, God sends no one empty away. And that's a wonderful thing and a true thing. God sends no one empty away. If we are seeking God, if we want God, if we desire God and long for God, we will find him. When we search for him with all our heart, God sends no one empty away except those who are full of themselves. If we are filled up with ourselves, there's no empty vessel before God for God to fill with his riches, with his grace, with his love. Like many of you, we have lived with Pilgrim's Progress for for most of our life. Uh, That outstanding book 
in, in the English language. And in it, there's a, a wonderful reflection, not only on, on many of the characteristics of the Christian life, but, but on pride. And this is a statement which I'm sure you know and I've tried to live with. He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride. And Bunyan is saying, as we live in the presence of Christ, in the presence of his great holiness, in the presence of his great love, we are humbled in the presence of Christ. And that humble and lowly place means that we don't need to fear being humbled. He that is down needs fear no fall. He that is low, no pride.